Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are we doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We're uh, glad to be of service to all of you during this time of distancing. So I'm glad you're listening to us. <laughs> yeah, um, and also thank you to thank you to everybody who sent us all that positive feedback about our bonus episode with uh, Reb Doctor Fatima Saleh and Margaret Olson last week. It was we're just relieved that we were able to finally figure out a way to do remote interviews. So. We're very excited to bring more of those to you guys in the coming months. Uh, still figuring out exactly who we want to bring on this show and trying to figure out how to get connected to the appropriate people. But yeah, if you guys have ideas, we're definitely open to those. Be more than happy to hear your suggestions. But uh, yeah, you know what the show's about, so just let us know who you think would be a good fit to at least have a conversation with. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and thanks all of you who participated in our Ask Me Anything event. That was really cool. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. You know, it was, <laughs> I mean, we're just happy to engage with you guys in any way we can. Um, you know, especially during this time of social isolation, like that's the most social I've been in the last week. So thank you guys for that reprieve. And also, like, this was the first, this past Sunday was the first Sunday where we had just a global, nobody went to church. Like, every church was shut down. I don't know how that was for everybody. Like, I don't think my ward did anything. Did your ward do anything, Derek? No, not that I know of, other than I helped bring the sacrament to some of uh, some of the members of our ward. Mm. Yeah, I don't even think we did uh, that much in my ward. I mean... We might have. I just didn't hear anything about it. And I think they may have tried a, a Zoom Sunday school. Again, I didn't I didn't hear anything about that, but I think a lot of people did that last week. And I did see some, uh, some other organizations host some kind of Sunday school or host some kind of Come Follow Me thing online. I mean, I guess that was cool. And a lot of families, I would imagine, have hosted their own Sunday schools at their houses or just kept the whole home study Come Follow Me thing going. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to see the we're going to see the strength of that in the coming months or however long this pandemic lasts where we're socially isolated. But, yeah, that's uh, I mean, that was that was just really interesting just to see how people would respond to having no church or how people, you know, just try to be there for each other when they can't necessarily gather together. Right. And I think that um that a lot of these experiences that we're going to have along the way when we all come back together again it will be a changed church because i've heard reports of some t- uh families who did their own sacrament at home and for the first time in a long time their queer kids were able to partake of the sacrament or their queer kids were able to to feel comfortable and safe in a place where where they're worshiping God and they weren't able to get that in their ward but they're able to get it if they have uh, supportive parents and who can frame the whole thing and I think having just a taste of that joy you can't ever go back and and accept something less than that so I think we'll have a changed church when we all come back together mm. that's very interesting I wonder why some of these children were not able to partake of the sacrament at church, but were able to do so at home. Did they just not feel like they could take it at church, or what was the deal? I don't know exactly. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't feel safe even attending at all. I see. Um, that's probably what I imagine happened. Is that they just don't feel safe. They uh, risk hearing awful messages if they attend. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard of a lot of priesthood leaders like denying them the sacrament and uh, but although that does happen it has happened right but i think the bigger issue is that they're uh just not safe at church not welcome at church or or perceive that they won't be welcome or yeah and at home they they don't have to worry about that all right what else has happened this past week in terms of uh changes to church or changes to a conference like what do we know about that right now so one thing I noticed, and I don't have all the details, is that a lot of the missionary work has been um, suspended. Like I know missionaries in cert- most places in the world aren't supposed to be going door-to-door anymore uh-huh. um, or visiting members' homes, and that's a big change. Uh, um, I had a 
video conference with the missionaries that served my ward this past week. It was really great to, to hear from them. I'm sure that they were bored and wanting to talk to someone cool, but they had, they only had me. So whoops. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, then, yeah. And uh, a number of missionaries are now being sent home. The MTC is no longer accepting new people that will be done virtually. A lot of people are being sent home. Like I just said, like sent home to like continue their service or just being sent home period. I don't like, know. Are they continuing their service. I don't know. I think some are sent home and then going to be reassigned okay. in the United States or wherever they're from. But this is a, this is a big, a big thing. Um, yeah, it's tough. And you know, one of the biggest changes about this whole quarantining thing is that from now on, all of my jokes will be inside jokes. Oh my god! <laughs> Why, dude? <laughs> Good theology, bad jokes. Yeah, I mean, that's basically Derek. <laughs> anyway, well, other than that, I can't think of much new news. Yeah, about to say, like, uh, what happened with conference? Is there more con- uh, changes? To oh, conference? the changes to conference. A while back, we heard that it was just going to be not the public, but it, the impression was it was still going to be the same thing. You would have all the 70s there. You would have everyone there. You would have the the tab cats there. Tabcats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we <laughs> I was about to use the wrong word for them. Mm-hmm. We're not supposed to say the M word anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, apparently, that's even that reduced thing has become even more reduced with pre-recorded music. The only people who will be there will be the people who are speaking, praying, or the first presidency. It won't be the, even the full panel of the general authorities that you always see. Interesting. So that's uh, done out of an abundance of caution. Mm. And so that will that is what it is. I mean, we have to do. And it's actually an act of love for your neighbor. We shouldn't think, obviously, this is this is a difficult time, but we shouldn't think, oh, why are they punishing us even more by not giving us conference? But we should s- celebrate the fact that we have some wisdom in our leadership right. who are taking these steps to keep people safe. And that's the most important thing is, is, uh, is life and family and, and keeping those things. So I'm very glad that our leadership has taken these steps. Hmm. All right. I think that's all I had for news. I just want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So for the Come Follow Me this week, we are in the book of Enos, Jerem, Omni, and Words of Mormon. We're basically finishing the first third of the Book of Mormon. Not a lot of pages here. But there is a lot of uh, content that's worth noting, a lot of little interesting things worth pointing out. Definitely in Enos' story for sure, and a couple of things in the coming, uh, in the coming verses that are on Jerem and Omni. Uh, Derek, do you have any uh, historical context you want to give us before we go into uh, these books? No, let's just jump right in and, and we'll uh, pick all that up along the way if there's something to say. Okay. So uh, moving right into Enos. Enos is the son of Jacob. And uh, it's very interesting that just going back to Jacob briefly, Jacob ends his record with noting the loneliness and the solemnity of uh, the Nephites, of his people. And uh, Enos begins his record very similarly to how Jacob and Nephi begin uh, their record, you know, talking about the goodliness of, uh, you know, his father and all that stuff. He talks about the joy of saints. He talks about eternal life in the first verses. Um, you know, it's just significant that in all this, what it seems melancholy that Jacob is has ended his record with, Enos still seems to have quite a bit of hope and stuff. And that's, you know, that's saying something. You know what I'm saying? Just even though that the Nephites have still led a more or less... Um, you know, lonely and solemn life and one that was riddled with uh, war and isolation. Um, Enos still seems to have quite a bit of hope and he doesn't seem to be, I mean, maybe he's still going through his own trauma, but he at least seems to have a healthy degree of hope that is informing his theology and that is informing the words that he writes in this particular uh, record that, you know, that is only one chapter. But just something uh, worth mentioning is the hope and that 
he remembers uh, the words of his father. He remembers that being relatively positive, even though they didn't have the easiest life. So that was one significant thing I just wanted to point out real quick. But I really want to uh, get to uh, uh, this uh, wrestle that Enos has before that he has before God. He uses that word wrestle to describe his experience in seeking a remission of his sins. And I don't find that insignificant. Wrestling, like most sports, is a competition of wills. And there isn't really a more intimate competition of wills than wrestling. No additional elements of, uh, of balls, bats, rackets, and hoops. Just, just your barely or tightly clothed bodies with the objective of physically imposing yourself onto your opponent. It's just a very raw and intimate sport. Uh, the preposition by is used here, and that may be significant. It may not be. I don't know. But for the sake of consistency of the text, I'm going to assume it is just to contextualize uh, this wrestle. So with that preposition in place, Enos is wrestling before God, and he's likely wrestling with himself. Would that be a fair interpretation of this, Derek? Yeah, I don't know. I have I was wondering about what it, what it means to wrestle before God because yeah. it would make a, m- a lot more sense to me in the context if he said I'm wrestling with God. Right. And and I looked into that real quick just to yeah. see if there was a significance to that preposition. I noticed that wrestling cross-reference to another scripture in Alma where uh, it talks about Alma wrestling with God for the sake of uh, his brethren, for the sake of mm-hmm. the Lamanites. And uh, that to me seemed to be an appropriate preposition to use in that particular context. But when I uh, likened this particular account to myself and saw what Enos was wrestling for, what he was seeking the Lord for, um, he talks, he mentioned specifically when he talks about his wrestle with God, he mentioned specifically that he was seeking a remission of his sins, which uh, makes this notion of wrestling with oneself make sense to me personally, because I know that when I have sought a remission of my sins, that wrestle was very personal. It felt like a wrestle with both with, with myself and one with God as well, seeking forgiveness, but also seeking to uh, like uh, be, be focused, be honest, and be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Be humble in my prayers and my mm-hmm. supplications to God. Like It's an extremely difficult thing, which is why I feel like a wrestle with myself would feel like a wrestle before God. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I did a little bit of research, like I said a number of episodes ago, trying to look at how these words were used in the English language before 1830, uh-huh. and looking at all the books under with Google Books, looking about wrestling before. In almost every case, to wrestle before someone means to wrestle in front of them with them as the audience. Uh-huh. Um, so that's probably what what this this might mean here but still in my heart i have like the genesis 32 experience of jacob yeah. wrestling with the angel yeah in my head and i think there's something powerful about wrestling with god and that's how you get the name israel is the one who wrestles with god and uh-huh. um i'm assuming that the nephites would have known about this story and and i'm like i think that there there is an element of a struggle with god and i'll get to that later um, but he's either wrestling with himself, wrestling with his sins, maybe wrestling with Satan. But I think there's also a wrestle with God, a struggle with God, because he sort of is is wanting something from God. Right. Right. He he does. It's not just he wants to be, you know, to not sin anymore. He also wants the forgiveness, and that has to come from God. And so I think there's uh-huh. a wrestle there. And I think in some ways Enos is softening his words, and and it's a, it's a wrestle that has a connection with God, but Certainly. he's softening it and saying it's just a wrestle before God. All right. Um, and I think that's kind of what the prayer and supplication is because he's asking for something from God that right. that is in some sense a wrestle with God. Yeah, yeah. And like a, like a, I don't know, wrestling with oneself or wrestling with God, I feel like whatever preposition you want to use, it's, it's going to get really close and really honest. It's going to get really personal. Like, it, it feels like it's an effort to impose the will of God over your own will or impose the will of the real you over the will of the natural self. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like it's going to be either way, however you want to color it, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be hard and like an actual wrestle. It's probably going to get a little gross and uncomfortable and embarrassing in parts like and that's just 
part of the process of mm-hmm. of an actual wrestle, which is why I like the use of that word here. It implies all of that in the process of a wrestle with God, of an uncomfortable, honest, and focused struggle with God. It's it's very difficult and it's very taxing. So like when I pondered what that would look like in moments of my, in my life where I needed the atonement to cleanse me of sin and make me a better person than I felt I was able to be, those are some really difficult prayers. Like being forthcoming with those struggles and difficulties is a painful and sometimes even traumatic experience. Embracing all of that negativity, all of that negative emotion while trying to maintain a will to continue in a open communication with your maker for hours at a time we know that Enos is dealing with, that is not an easy thing to do. But um, when you see what Enos's motivating factor was, which is basically the the words of his father and this desire to feel this joy of the saints, this knowledge of eternal life, that was powerful enough for Enos to endure all that in this wrestle with God, which is pretty profound when you consider what exactly Enos knew or how strong his testimony was of uh, Christ himself. And we're going to see that evidenced in the next verse when, you know, he finishes his prayer or rather it's interrupted by God saying, Enos, your sins are forgiven and then pronounces him whole. Like as a result, he came out of that experience forgiven and whole. And that means to be whole. What it means to be whole is hinted in the coming verses. But I just wanted to uh, point that out real quick was that his uh, motivating factor to stay in this wrestle was this desire for forgiveness and this knowledge of eternal life and the joy of the saints that his father had uh, given him. And I like what you said earlier, and you you hinted at the fact of, of how there's this significant intimacy within wrestling because yeah. you're in, in close contact with an, right. one another. There's no like bat or ball between you. It's not right. like a race where you're far apart from each other and contending from a distance. You are... F- Physically, it's the opposite of social distancing. Right. It is. <laughs> it is the opposite of social distancing. <laughs> it is very, uh, and I think that is a good model of how we should act with God because, yes, even when there's a wrestle with God, it actually is something, it's a closeness. Yeah. It is a very intimate closeness that we have with God. And I think um, we'll get to it because I think there's certain things that Enos wants from God. He wants uh, the certainty of forgiveness. Later, he initiates and even extracts a new covenant with God in verse 16. I don't know if you want to go there right now. Um, let's see. Let's see. We I want to go there in a second. Okay, there's one, well, there's one well, more let's thing. Get there. Okay, let's get there. Like, I just want to get to uh, this piece in verse 9 real quick because uh, this is one of the more significant things to me and also a theme that we've seen in the Book of Mormon before. Uh, when Enos gains a remission of his sins— He desires to turn his attention to the welfare of the rest of his people, the Nephites. It seems that they're still struggling in sin the way Jacob has described them before. And Enos wants them to experience what he's experiencing. And like I said, this is a recurring theme in the Book of Mormon is that when you receive a remission of your sins or when you experience the love or blessings of God, your focus turns outward and you want to share that with other people. We saw that with uh, we saw that with Lehi when he in his vision of the tree of life, when he partook of the fruit, the first thing he wanted to do was find mm. his family so that they yeah. might partake as well. And we're going to see this again when we get to the stories of Alma and the sons of Mosiah. One of the first things they do after they are converted to the Lord in a very Paul-esque manner is, uh, is uh, they want to spend the rest of their days in the service of their brethren doing missionary work in essence. Like they want to spend the remainder of their days making sure that everybody else has the gospel. So this is a theme that's pretty common in the Book of Mormon is when one becomes converted they immediately want to go and strengthen their brethren. So I feel like one of the great lessons that we can gain from the Book of Mormon that we can liken to ourselves is a great measure of our conversion to Jesus Christ and our conversion to the atonement of Jesus Christ is how much we want to share that with other people. In fact, uh, Alma the Younger himself, he's going to hint at that and he's going to ask that question in several different ways once we get to Alma chapter 5. But we'll save that conversation for when we actually get to that chapter. Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful because this that's his immediate reaction to understanding his own forgiveness mm-hmm. so deeply and so thoroughly. His immediate reaction is to say, wow, my the rest of my people have to have this too. They got to experience this, yeah. And I think that is the is something that authentically flows from understanding the gifts of God. Yeah. And I, I want to connect this to um, our straight friends in the church. 
Mm-hmm. And because, for example, I'm going to say some, some something kind of bold. We've got these straight couples that are sealed to each other, and they're like, oh, they're so happy. But my theory is their wedding day, the first thing that they should say to themselves is, you know what, this is so amazing. I want my queer friends to have this too. Mm. Because if they don't say that, they don't understand what they got. Mm. They don't understand what happened that day. If, if it doesn't overflow with this, this is so amazing. And I want my queer friends to be able to marry the person that they love. Mm. If that's not their first cho- thought, they don't even understand what happened to them today. They do not appreciate God's gifts because it didn't result, like with Enos, in an overflowing of, of grace and, 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 and hospitality for others saying, look, I want them to have this too. Mm. Um, it just, that's, that's how I read it. Because, you know, my theory is that, that once you have received this gift of God, you should be agitated that not everyone in the church is able to have that gift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you should, uh, you, you should just immediately have this overflowing response of, look, this is amazing. And, and LGBTs need to hear, th- have that too. Same thing with, um, people who are cisgender. Like when we are recognized as our own gender in the church, we should immediately have an overflowing desire to say, Hey, you know what? My trans siblings, I want them to have that too. Right. Right. Because if you don't say that, you don't understand what God has given you. Mm-hmm. You don't understand God's blessings for f- that you have. If you don't want those same blessings for others, mm-hmm. there's just this narrowness. You don't understand Christ or what he did at all. If you don't immediately want this to be universal within the church. Mm. And that's exactly, I think it's really interesting how it's, I'm so glad that we didn't skip ahead to what I was going to say because this immediately flows in sequence. All right. It was the wrestling with God that gave him the resi- realization of this tremendous thing. And his immediate reaction was to say, I want others to have it. Mm-hmm. And it's that reaction of wanting others to have it that made him and prompted him to extract this covenant with God. Mm-hmm. Should we go there now? The covenant? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, because uh, that's actually the next thing I want to go to was the fact that uh, before we get to, before we get to the covenant, we should note that um, Enos, after he focuses on or he asks God, or the next focus of his prayer is to be focused on the Nephites, his attention then turns to the Lamanites, right. yeah. which is where uh, this covenant comes from. But I do want to point out the fact that uh, Enos makes an effort to. Like, like, like the fact that his attention turns to the Lamanites in prayer and supplication, like I think this is unique, or this is the first instance we have of this in the Book of Mormon, of a Book of Mormon prophet, a Nephite prophet specifically praying for the welfare and, uh, and the, uh, well, praying for the welfare and the salvation of the Lamanites. Like this mm-hmm. is the first time we get there. And uh, that's, that's pretty significant, especially in considering this mm-hmm. covenant that, Enos actually sets the terms for. So yeah, uh, yeah let's uh, let's talk about that. I covenant. think we did have some missionary work among the Lamanites. We did earlier, have some missionary work, but this but we is never like had the a first, prayer. We never had like a prayer, a okay. specific prayer outlined where we learned that my prayer, like a prophet, a Nephi prophet's prayers and supplications, are for the welfare, for the eternal salvation of uh, the Lamanites themselves. We are going to see some elements of this missionary work because we're going to see later in this chapter that there is missionary work again. And it's yet again unsuccessful, probably for the same reasons, but we'll talk about that after we talk about this covenant. Yeah, and part of the historical context is you've got generations and generations of cyclical warfare here. Yeah. And you get hints of that in the text, but it's not like those wars in Alma that go on for chapters. It's there. We just maybe forget that that he's literally praying for his enemies. He's right. wishing the best for his enemies. And right. I think that is, is a, another proof that he fully understands Christ yeah. as much as he can. That's the kind of, uh, I mean, that's the kind of growth that Enos experienced in this wrestle. Like, this is how I know, like, this was a real wrestle is because this is growth I have yet to really experience myself. Like, I haven't, uh, I don't often feel to pray for my enemies or for the welfare of people that I know do not intend good things for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, in the, in the, in the role of social justice work, I don't often pray for the law enforcement institution or the judicial system or any other institutions or groups of people that I don't feel have my best interest in mind. So I think it really is a testament to the growth of Enos, the fact that he's willing to pray for his enemies and make this covenant that he's about to make. 
uh, for the sake of people that want to destroy him. Yeah, for me, I I pray for my enemies a lot because it helps me rise above that horizontal uh, thing between us. It just really helps me in a sense not process what they're doing in a different way and rise above it and not let it get to me the same way. Um, and it's, so it's really helpful for me. To, it even builds empathy, which I know that you might not like that. I don't. Well, <laughs> whoops. And you, and you know why I don't like it? Like, I like empathy, but this n- notion of people who are oppressed having empathy for their oppressors, that is a really hard concept for me to embrace because just... As soon, I feel like as soon as people try to build empathy for the oppressor, that just gives the oppressors excuse to not have empathy for us. You know what I'm saying? Like it gives them permission to make the same mistakes, and that's something I really struggle with. Well, what I think it is is it prevents me from making the same mistakes because the the real the real trick of oppression is that most people, most oppressed people, have this instinct, and it's totally valid. To just flip the power and do to them what they did to us. Yeah. And I think that's that really explains the whole cycle of, of warfare that you get between the Nephites and the Lamanites is is hurting people because of this ongoing feud and what your you know, what happened in your parents' generation and getting back for that. I don't think a lot of people who are in oppressed positions want that though. I don't think they want to flip the script and turn the oppressors into the oppressed. Like that's not something I feel like no, I, maybe not something to feel, but that is something that Satan would want it to tempt people with. Probably. I agree with that sentiment. So I just want to um, to make sure that that we want the best for our enemies and don't want done to them what had to happen to us. Right, right. I suppose I fear that empathy will release them of a may release them of accountability, which is something that I've seen happen all too much. White yeah. Tears, for example, Uh-oh. is a perfect example of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, as soon as a white person gets called on something racist that they did but they didn't necessarily intend in a certain way, they cry, and then it's just like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. Like, And then know. it becomes all about them, and they exactly. center their feelings. Like, empathy tends to center white people in that narrative, and that's what that's my biggest fear, is that empathy towards oppressors centers them in a narrative, and I really don't think that racism or homophobia is going to be solved by centering the oppressor's feelings in narratives that concern our liberation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a nuanced conversation. Perhaps we can't. But I think there's, there's like today. both of those points are, are true and kind of balance each other. I'm not really disagreeing w- with you, of course, mm-hmm. but there is something to, to the fact of, um, holding both intention. I think that's really one of the models of the Book of Mormon because you've got a lot of things in the Book of Mormon that have to be held in tension with one another. Yeah. Different perspectives, different voices, um, and, and this all has to be held in tension with the voices that aren't there because this is an abridgment right. uh, selection. Ooh. Sometimes the authors aren't even aware of their own biases or prejudices. Yeah. We're going to get to that. Yeah. There's a couple instances of that in, uh, well, at least one in Enos and a couple we'll probably get to in the other books. But yeah, so this covenant flows yeah, out the covenant, my of of his desire for the Lamanites because here's what he says in verse 16. Um, he's coming out of a position of faith. He's not coming out of a position of rebellion or, or trying to um, really rebel against God. No, this is an act of faith. He says, verse 16, And I had faith, and I did cry unto God that he would preserve the records, and he covenanted with, with me that he would bring them forth. So look, notice, he's the one that asked. He asked, saying, he cried unto God that God would preserve the records. And as a result of that initiative, he extracted this new covenant from God, saying that God would bring forth these records unto the Lamanites in his own due time. I'm like, wow, that's why we have the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. is because Enos made sure that God did it and then held God accountable to that promise and I don't get why people think that we who are LGBT in the church are troublemakers or rebellious or doing anything other than asking for the exact same thing that straight people have mm-hmm. uh, because here what, what we're trying to do is hold God accountable to these covenants and I think that's what I love about 
the Genesis 32 narrative is Jacob wrestled with the angel and said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Mm-hmm. And we who are LGBT and faithful in the church do the same thing. We're not going to let the church go until it blesses us. We're not going to let God go until he blesses us. We're not going to let our straight friends go until they bless us. Mm-hmm. Like we're here and we are wrestling with the, uh, at least the image of God that we've been presented. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some there's just something so powerful about this that he had this experience. It flowed into an outgrowth of love and empathy for his neighbors and including his enemies. And then out of that, he went back to God and said, God, here's what you need to do. Now, why is it when Enos does it, it's okay, but when queer people do it, it's somehow weird or 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 like challenging or threatening to people. I mean, it shouldn't be. Right. It really shouldn't be. Right. And let's talk about what this is. Is um, Here's another thing. One of the things he wanted to do is to preserve the records. That was one of his things. Like he cried out saying, I want you to preserve the records of my people. And here's one thing that I've noticed very interestingly. And maybe it's because I haven't done all the work that I should have, but we don't have the records of queer saints as good as we should. Mm. Um, like I think of all these generations from 1830 until now, a lot of them were queer and we have no, n- no idea who they were, what their stories were, what their wrestles were. And those records weren't preserved. Um, I can't, I'm the first named. Well, let's see the first named gender non-conforming person I know is Brigham Morris Young, the son of Brigham Young, who uh, was a drag queen. You know about him? No. Yeah. he. There's pictures of him in a in dress. He took on the character of Madame Paterini, and, and he was just basically a, a – I think that's pretty cool. And um, – there's there's him. Uh, that's probably the first one that I know of that's named. There's I'm sure there's others that aren't named. The the next named person is Joseph Fielding Smith. Not either of the prophets of that name, but the presiding patriarch. There's just too many people named Joseph Smith in our church. <laughs> um, but Joseph Fielding Smith, the presiding patriarch, was um, either gay or bisexual, and uh, married to a woman. And had an affair with a young man, and that's how we know. We only know because he got caught. Right. Um, I think this was in the fifties. I can't remember exactly when this was, um, which is not a good time to be gay. But, but other than that, other than him being caught, we don't have a record of of these struggles. I mean, like, where are my people? Where are my people? I mean, that's the other thing about family history work. I I look at all these presumably straight people by the powers of two, like two, four, six, uh, no, two, four, eight, thirty, sixteen, thirty-two. All these ancestors I have in my, like I don't know who's queer and who's not. Mm-hmm. I I wish I knew, um, and I don't. And that goes to the importance of preserving the records. And I think one of the tasks, if you're out there and listening and you want to do something, one of the tasks we can do we. you know it's difficult to do certain doctrinal work and tell the brethren what to do like that's something that it doesn't really isn't effective um, or isn't as effective but one thing we can do is queer history no one can stop us from doing history and researching these stories and telling these stories and telling them over and over and appealing to uh, queer Mormon culture and history and heritage and rooting that as the center of our task and because obviously we can't receive revelation for the whole church, but we can do history for the whole church. Mm-hmm. And I think once we do that, we can really change the narrative. Mm. So history as activism. Remember that. History is activism. All right. So um, let's see. So the next thing I want to uh, move on to is uh, close to the end of the verses here. In uh, in this book of Enos, this is probably verse. Yeah, it starts in about verse twenty. So this is what it says here. Uh, but before we get there, to contextualize this a bit more, in spite of all of Enos's growth, his people still have a lot of work to do, and that's evidenced by the uh, fire and brimstone rhetoric that the prophets use to keep their people in line. 
Um, you can see that in, what verse is this in? This is verse 23 that Enos is saying this. He says, and there was nothing save it was exceeding harshness, preaching and prophesying of wars and contentions and destructions and continually reminding them of death and the duration of eternity and the judgments and the power of God and all these things, stirring them up continually to keep them in the fear of the Lord. I say there was nothing short of these things and exceedingly great plainness of speech would keep them from going down speedily to destruction. And after this manner do I write concerning them. So we just see that, uh, you know, Enos isn't working with the most righteous people. Like it's this fire and brimstone rhetoric that the prophets have to use in order to keep their people in line. And there's also, we see this again in, uh, at the end of the book of Jacob, we also see a lack of success in missions to the Lamanites in verse 20. Um, there is still evidence in verse 20 that Enos may still think less of the Nephites for the lives they lead. At the very least, the Nephites still think less of the uh, Lamanites for the, li- for the lives they lead. Some of their lifestyle choices you can see are things that the Nephites are themselves still engaging in or things that they've done in the past. Things like eating raw meat like, you know, Enos's ancestors did or, you know, dwelling in tents or hunting wild beasts like Enos was doing just that day that he made that prayer, you know. Uh, dwelling in tents, skin color at least, is not mentioned this time. So perhaps that's progress, but we, we're not really going to know uh, how much progress that is until we progress uh, further in the story. Anyway, this is all to say that uh, Enos has made a lot of spiritual growth. He has made a lot of growth to the point where his faith in Christ is evident. The Lord is willing to make this covenant with him that Enos himself has set the terms of. But even amidst all that, Enos may himself still be wrestling with biases against a whole other people and is still not able to wholly have success among those people because of the hatred that is still present between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Despite all of Venus's progress that he's made as a person, there is still some prejudice there that may need to still be wrestled with. And I feel like that's significant. Uh, Once again, to illustrate a point that was made in the last uh, chapter, in the last book of Jacob, as well as in the book of Nephi, Despite their appointments as prophets of God, these are still people that are deeply, that are wrestling deeply with some personal biases. And these biases are limiting the success of their missionary work. They're limiting the way they're able to see certain things. So, uh, yeah, just another witness that we can be great people. We can have a lot of faith. We can speak with prophecy, the gift of prophecy, but still lack charity towards a whole population of people and have our work of salvation be limited by that prejudice. Yeah. I mean, that's almost as you, I'm sure alluding to a direct quotation from the beginning of first Corinthians 13. Yep. Absolutely. Um, which I, I really love because it humanizes and contextualizes our prophets. Yeah. And speaking of hum- humanizing our prophets, I, I just remembered. So the word Enos, it's a Hebrew name. In Hebrew, it's enosh, which means uh, human, the human one. There's there's a more common word, adam, in Hebrew for humanity. But enosh also is used to refer to a human. All right. Uh, the species. And I think that's really interesting because then Enos here is, in, in some sense, a character encompassing every person. Like we can all see our humanity in Enos. Um, the resourcefulness of reaching out to God, demanding from God, yeah, and then also struggling with your own prejudice and bias and his unseen, um, he's not able to, to see his own prejudice even after he's appealing on behalf of the Lamanites. Yep, yep. I think that's just, there's something for all of us to see ourselves in. Absolutely, Venus. absolutely. Something for us to see ourselves in, something for us to see in our own leaders. Like this is able to allow me to give a certain amount of grace to Enos. It allows me to give grace to other prophets. It allows me to give grace to our leaders today that I can hold them in high esteem because of their appointments as prophets, because of their faith in Jesus Christ and all they did to cultivate cultivate their relationships with Christ. And I can still aspire to those things while still holding as well, holding them accountable for their prejudice or holding them accountable for the things that they cannot see for their blind spots. And, you know, there's, there's also an irony with him uh, talking about preserving a record of his people. 
he doesn't ever, so far as I know, in his record, mention the women of his people. He mm. doesn't mention his mother, what he learned from his mother, um, whether he even had a wife. Well, he must have had a wife because he had a son. Mm. Uh, well, I shouldn't have made that <laughs> heteronormative assumption. but I mean, it's the Book of Mormon. Like. <laughs> but yeah, within the context. Within the context, he yeah. would have He would have had a wife um, in order to have a son. And but he doesn't mention the women like he's talking about preserving the records of his people. But so many authors in the Book of Mormon don't preserve the voices and narratives of women. I'm like, what's up with that? And that's that's, I think, a major omission there. Mm -hmm. He's so desperate that his records are preserved and we don't even know anything about the women of his time. Mm -hmm. Like how they would have wrestled with God or how the women uh, among the Lamanites and the women of the Nephites would have interacted. Were they at war with one another or did they despise the war? I don't know any of these things. Mm. Like how did the mothers feel about their kids going off to war? I don't know. This is just, I wish I had more uh, there. I mean, one of the ironies is I, um, I, I love looking for women in the scriptures, but not in my dating life. <laughs> That's the only time I look for women. Speaking of stories that aren't there, uh, this might be a good time to move on to the book of Omni. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about the book of Omni or about how these records are being, Oh wait a second. We didn't even go to Jerem. Yeah, we've got Jerem yet. Okay. Jerem. Um, I don't think I had much to say about Jerem. The only thing I marked out was verse four. There are many among us who have many revelations, for they are not all stiff-necked, which clearly connects being open-minded and uh -huh. not being stiff-necked with the ability to receive revelation. Uh -huh. And so the more you think you know something, the more you think you understand, the less revelation you're going to get. Mm. And I think this is a this can delay a lot of the, the new light and knowledge that God would want to have for us. Um, we've seen this pattern over and over in history in the history of the church of people thinking that they've got the answers, they inherit the tradition of their fathers and they know it all. Mm -hmm. And they really, really don't. And I think that's actually one of the tragedies I think is that straight people think they understand the plan of salvation. Right. And, um, and really we, we don't know even half the details of what the next life is going to look like or what families are going to look like all these. And a lot of straight people think we've got the ceiling. We're all set. We know everything. I'm like, in some ways, queer people are at an epistemic advantage here because at least we know that we don't know mm -hmm. what's going on. Right. And I think a lot of straight people think they have it all figured out, and which is why they're not curious about what's going to happen to queer people. Mm -hmm. They just have, uh, they they're they're playing with this small part of the the toy, uh, the the sandbox. I guess they're in one little corner. I'm like, oh, we've got this, and they don't realize the wide expanse of the horizon of our ignorance as a whole people. We just don't know a lot of these details. Mm. Um, and I, I almost feel bad for straight people in the church because without a prompting to, to realize that they don't know it all, it's easy to be content and not cry out for more knowledge and, mm -hmm. and demand more revelations. You, you know what? Does that, it's almost counterintuitive that I'm no, saying absolutely. that queer people have an advantage. But I'm just. But I get it, you know. But I, but you know, so many people are so complacent right. with with saying like we know what it's like, right? And w we don't even know much about Heavenly Mother. How can you be complacent with that? Hmm. We don't know literally anything officially about Heavenly Mother. Right. There's right. no official document in the church that even says we have a Heavenly Mother. Right. I'm thinking of the proclamation which says Heavenly Parents. It doesn't mm -hmm. say the genders. Right. And then the even the young woman's theme says heavenly parents. It doesn't say heavenly mother. We don't even know for sure the genders involved in terms of what official church doctrine is. Right. I don't think we've ever had a conference talk on heavenly mother. Like all of these definitions of what constitutes official doctrine that some people use, like, oh, if it's in the scriptures or if it's in a semi-official document. We don't have conference talks about Heavenly Mother so much as I know. The, well, we do have Brigham Young's saying uh, that God was a polygamist and there are many Heavenly Mothers, but we don't want to use that anymore. Right. I'm really like, look, we've got, we've, there's so much we don't know about 
what an exalted couple will look like because we don't know what Heavenly Mother's doing and what her name is and what she's up to. And, mm-hmm. like, and people are comfortable with that. I'm like, huh? Well, so I better just end that right there. But let's just go back to my point here. And there are many among us who have many revelations for they are not all stiff-necked. Mm-hmm. And as many as are not stiff-necked and have faith, have communion with the Holy Spirit, which maketh manifest unto the children of men according to their faith. So I think um, a lot of people assume the brethren just magically get all the stuff plopped down from heaven like a telegraph or something. Um, But it requires deep humility, deep admission of your own ignorance, and uh, a, a a completely... A complete commitment, unreservedly, to not being stiff-necked and not and not and not stubborn. Yeah, yeah. This is another theme that. Sorry, do you have a little more? Nope, that's it. That's I all gonna... I had out of. Uh, um. Well, now let me just say one more thing. Okay. Speaking of not being stiff-necked, I love this idea in verse eleven, where he basically persuades his people. Uh, are they're, they're persuading people to look forward unto the Messiah, which I get, and then believe in him to come as though he already was, which I almost don't get. And I, like, how can you believe in it so much that you act and assume that it, act as though it had already happened? Like, that's how they believe, that's how they view the atonement. They're like, Jesus died already. Jesus died for our sins. They could say that because in their mind it already happened. And I think almost counterintuitively, a lot of queer people in the church, we need to live into that because we know the change is coming mm-hmm. and we need to live as if, at least we need to have our dignity as if that change has already happened. I've, that's how I live. I, mm-hmm. it, I'm i so confident God will ne- never let this church swelter forever in um, the oppression of my people. I'm, al- I'm already knowing that that's going to happen. And living into the dignity that that supports for me, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's that's a brilliant message here of of knowing being having so much faith that it's going to happen that you can live as though it's already happened. Yeah, I think that's something that that uh, I haven't heard from a lot of queer people in the church. Uh, I don't think I've heard this from queer people, but uh, this is definitely something I've heard in the black community. This is something we've heard from Martin Luther King. This is yeah. something we've heard from, uh, this is something we heard from Lehi, actually. In fact, I remember Ahmed Corbin making allusions to this idea of living as if the uh, atonement had already happened Right. Uh, when it comes to Lehi being a visionary man, him talking in the, uh, uh, what's that tense, future perfect or present? I don't know what the tense is, but basically speaking as if the appointed event had already happened. Mm-hmm. Like that's the kind of faith that Lehi was exhorting his family right. to have. That's the kind of faith that God wanted Lehi to have. Yeah. And this is the kind of faith that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. exhibited both in his I Have a Dream speeches and his mountaintop speeches. Mm-hmm. He spoke as if the day had already come. He talked about having seen a vision, having seen the mountaintop, having seen the promised land, and living as if that reality had already come to the pass, had already come to pass, and in so doing declared that I'm not worried about anything. I am happy today. I have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Like this is the kind of faith that I believe God is wanting us to have the kind of faith where we are living into realities that have not yet come to pass, but nonetheless will. And, um, you know, that's what you're saying right there, Derek, you're living, you are so confident in this God that will see that you are liberated Mm -hmm. and see that you are saved, that you are already living as if it has come to pass. And, uh, that's the real definition of, that's the real definition of faith to me is knowing what has come to pass or knowing what you are destined for and living accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. I like that a lot. So, uh, hopefully we can get some more, um, some more theological pieces from the queer community that, uh, speak on this particular definition of faith. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't, I don't think, uh, I've read from many queer theologians that have spoken of faith or spoken of liberation in this sense. Because I think for a lot of them, it's so so uncertain as to whether it is going to happen. I mean, I, I hear so many people in the church say, well, it's never going to happen. We're never going to have um, dignity and equality for, for queer couples. I'm like, well, of course we are. 
Like, who do you think runs the church? <laughs> it's, it's God. It's not man. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Anyway, um, going back to this, uh, this idea that you talked about earlier of noticing that there are so many stories that are not here, this uh, notion that, you know, we don't have any of the stories of the women. We see a uh, – I, I really like that there's a moment here when the Nephites actually uh, – you know, under the leadership of Mosiah, they find the people of Zarahemla. And this is just a very interesting story to me because... Uh, oh, yeah. What happens if you don't have written history? What happens if you yeah. don't have written history and more? What happens when you just don't include people's stories, period? I really like what uh, Dr. Fatima had to say about this particular instance. Um, this is where uh, Mosiah, or sorry, the people of Mosiah come across the people of Zarahemla and in their land. It's a reunion of sorts. Like they're happy to see each other because they're both descendants of Jews just from different points of history. Uh, the people of Zarahemla from the time of Zedekiah who like existed like during the p- time of the people at uh, the Tower of Babel or whatever. Like that's the time that the people of Zarahemla had come over or whatever. Um, but Mosiah and his people settled down because they have to flee the land of Nephi. They settled down with the people of Zarahemla in the land of Zarahemla. They teach the people the language of the Nephites. They share the gospel with them because at this point they have a completely different culture, language, and religion. And uh, they receive their history. They share stories with each other. But they don't include it in this record, which is, you know, which is curious. Mosiah then eventually becomes the king of all these people, both of the Nephites and the people of Zarahemla, to the point where there's a complete assimilation of these cultures. Everybody is a Nephite at this point. We have lost, in effect, the entire culture of the Zarahemlaites, or whatever we want to call them, the people of Zarahemla. And, uh, you know, that's significant. We just see a complete assimilation of their culture. And uh, Dr. Fatima calls this, no matter how good the intentions are of the Nephites, this is a colonization. Like from this point onward, we don't see or hear anything more about the people of Zarahemla because they are Nephites now. We have a whole culture that is in essence lost and a record that is not present in these particular plates. And that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, it does. Um, following up on that, I, I think it's really interesting how how Amalekai, because Amalekai is writing about that and he's writing about something else in verse 25. He, this is really interesting. I didn't notice this any of the previous times I've read the Book of Mormon, but I just noticed this now. It says in verse 25 of Omni 1, um, and it came to pass that I began to be old and having no seed and knowing King Benjamin to be a just man before the Lord, wherefore, wherefore I shall deliver up these plates unto him. That's interesting. So we've got a chain of, of either father to son or brother to brother from Lehi up until Amalekai. And then Amalekai says he has no seed. I wonder if that's because he has no wife or just he was not able to have children. I don't or, know. Yeah, or, or, or maybe his children died in a war. I don't know. But... Uh, what's interesting is that there's a backup plan here. A lot of people think, oh, no, you have to have this very, this family can only look one way and church can be only done way and, and this can be only done way. I'm like, there's a such thing as adoption. I mean, there's there's such thing as, you know, chosen family. And in this case, he he noticed, I think it actually flows from his knowledge of the people of Zarahemla, what happened to them, the importance of transmitting the records. He said, this is so important that just because I don't have a normative family structure doesn't mean I give up. I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going mm. to give this to someone I trust, a just man, Benjamin, and pass on custody of these records to someone that's not my own descendant. I'm like, that's brilliant. I mean, and then when we queer people do it, somehow we, we end up seen as apostates. Mm-hmm. And that's, I'm like, that's not apostate because God, if anyone, if anyone knows the fact that near, there needs to be exceptions or backup plans or contingencies, it's God, right? right. God's, God, God's got us, right? I think it's mm-hmm. we're the ones that just can't see outside of these little boxes. There's been contingencies since the beginning. Right. Like and since so the beginning. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I just want to name that real quick. That's really cool. So that's all I had about Omni. 
Okay. Well, before we get to the words of Mormon, there's something worth mentioning in the last few verses of Omni here. It's a, it's a brief recounting of a group of Nephites from the land of Zarahemla who want to return to the land of Nephi, the, the place they just fled, and also the land of their inheritance, and they're, they're going to repossess it. So they, they probably didn't like that they had to leave that land. There isn't really anything else written here that indicates their motivation for this is anything except that it's the land of their inheritance. They want it because they believe it to be theirs, even though the Lord, a generation at most ago, told them to leave it. There's no inspiration or revelation recorded here that is uh, motivating this pilgrimage. It only seems to be an entitlement. And what's the result exactly? They end up fighting and killing each other to the point where there's only 50 of them remaining. Then they come back to Zarahemla, but they end up leaving again with greater numbers, and their fate isn't much better, which we'll find out once we get to Mosiah chapter 9. In fact, those people will ultimately end up returning to Zarahemla a generation or so later. The, the point of addressing this is that sometimes our sense of entitlement or our discomfort with changes to our status quo can really mess with us. A regular theme of the Book of Mormon is God calling people into new spaces, disrupting their comfort and ways of life in order to preserve and prosper them in various ways. And not only do we see their journeys are made more difficult when they fight this, but we also see that the the effects of this, of them fighting this, are far-reaching. Laman and Lemuel's entitlement and stubbornness resulted in a centuries-long conflict between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Zenith's entitlement resulted in some 60 years of direct conflict with the Lamanites, only first people to be led by the Lord back to Zarahemla, where they started this journey in the first place. There are serious consequences for letting our pride, our entitlement, and our comfort get in the way of our growth. This, this has several applications, but for the church and our work of social progress, too many people are not trying to move forward, and they may even be trying to go backward like Desnat when it comes to the growth and change and development of the church. They, they don't want to leave their supposed inheritance of heteronormativity, patriarchy, and white supremacy because that journey is tough and the status quo is comfortable, but staying there will likely have a profound, far-reaching effects on our personal growth, the growth of the church in general, and, 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 the, and the growth of mm -hmm. our posterity. The Lord, I feel, is trying to lead us into new spaces as he has led the Nephites into new spaces. But like Laman and Lemuel or the people of Zenith, our entitlement will only get in our way of becoming the people and the church that the Lord intends for us to be. Yeah, that that's amazing. It reminds me a lot of, I don't know if, if we've talked about this on the podcast, um, but Rabbi Benet Lappy's crash theory and option You quote her a lot, so we probably have said something by, we definitely said a lot of things by her, but yeah, but continue. Yeah, her, um, her, uh, her crash theory is about all about responding to crashes, and then the option one people are the ones who try to artificially re reinforce the old narrative when it's very clear that you need to move on. Um, and... Uh, and the other thing uh, that I may have said and just reminded me is people are, you know, there's a lot of people who are queer and for all the right and valid reasons just want to distance themselves from the scriptures or from church or from the community. And I'm like, uh -huh. okay, I get it. There, there's a there's a real reason behind that and it, right. it's invol it involves safety and dignity. Right. But for me, I have the privilege of being able to engage our tradition. And I love what Rabbi B'nai Lappi said when she said, um, we, and by that she meant we who are queer Jews, she's queer herself, mm -hmm. we need to master our tradition or else our tradition will master us. Mm. And I think that is so profound, profound and why I spend a lot of my time um, studying our tradition, our scriptures, our history. And, and that's why we have these records. I love that so much about the Book of Mormon is the importance of having these records. Yeah. So that's all I had on um, on Omni. Cool. Do you have anything for uh, Words of Mormon, this little uh, bridge, if you will, between uh, the different records, the plates? Yeah. I'm, the only thing I, I noted was in verse 7 where he admits. He says, And now I do not know all things, 
but the Lord knoweth all things which are to um, which are to come. Mm. I think that's really cool because I think humility is the number one prerequisite for revelation. Mm. That the more humble you are, the more likely it is you're to say, you know what, I don't know, and the more likely it is you are able to hold God accountable to his promises and say, mm. look, we need more. And that's exactly what all the strongest people of strongest faith do. Like mm. Enos, the brother of Jared, um, the Syrophoenician woman, Jacob wrestling with Angel. There's just um, Mary and the uh, and the wedding at Cana and the wine. There's just so many ways of saying, look, we know. And, and I think part of being able to know the future is, is certain. Just like I said, having this idea of living as though this promised blessing has already come. Part of the reason that you can do that is if you know that God is trustworthy and you have made uh God make a covenant with you, mm -hmm. right? God has promised us that the first will be last. God has promised us that all are like unto God. God has promised that every tear will be wiped away. How can I not believe those? Mm -hmm. Right? And God so, can't lie. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all I had on the words of Mormon. And I think it's important to notice that Mormon is writing at the n known destruction of his people. Right. There's something there. Like he's seen a lot of trauma. He um, is still providing hope, and even after knowing the entire history from Lehi to him, and the only one left after him is uh, Moroni, mm -hmm. he still says, I don't know all things. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be done. Um, he has a lot of humility, and he has a lot of lessons to be learned, and we'll get to those lessons in the forthcoming weeks. Definitely. One more thing that may be uh, worth noting here is that in just a few short pages, we see the beginning of many different authors of the Book of Mormon record uh, writing. And in so writing, they tell us why they are writing. Like uh, we find people writing because of they want to benefit the Lamanites, people writing because, you know, as, as seen here in Words of Mormon, for a wise purpose in God, some people simply writing because that's the way... It's gone. Like yeah, they, they're doing did, their checkbox. Right, thing. they're just checkbox Mormonism. So like, there's something to be said here. We have this record for a variety of different reasons, and because people understood the duty to preserve the plates very differently, or the, their duty to write in the plates very differently. Um, and you know, there's two things worth noting there. One is that you don't have to always have the best motivations just to do you know, something that God has said or just to do the right thing, whatever that is and whatever is informing what is the right thing here. Um, the fact that all of their records, despite their different motivations, are preserved here, that is significant and kind of beautiful in a way because, you know, that all, all of that matters to God and all that matters for the sake of this record. So the fact that some of these men weren't the most righteous men or the fact that many of them or some of them may not have known exactly why they were writing except for they just knew that was they were supposed to do like that's good enough for God. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? That's good enough for the book of Mormon, a record that we now regard as sacred. Uh, the other thing is, um, Oh, the other thing is that it informs how we should probably uh, read this record. You know, when we are reading the book of Mormon and one of the first things that we're given is why the person is writing this record that should inform how we read the text from then on, uh, you know, under that, under that particular author. So just one more thing to consider is how we should probably read the text when we consider why the author is keeping the record. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Then if there's nothing else for the Come Follow Me for this week's reading, uh, before we sign off, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first Ooh, is... Exciting. <laughs> It's exciting indeed. The first is a Dialogue Heritage, with trace, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by, by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. So, with that, Derek, we got a couple housekeeping items. You want to tell the people what you're doing tomorrow and next Sunday? Well, yeah. So, they might not hear it before it happens tomorrow, but... They might not. 
tomorrow I'm going to be doing this online Sunday school for Mormons building bridges. Uh, they asked me to teach something to them. So tomorrow I'm going to be talking about plagues in the Bible. Right now, James <laughs> is looking at me funny. Plagues like, in the Bible. we got to be relevant and timely. But also just, I know where it's coming from. Derek is going to put his theological knowledge and wisdom on oh, this. Oh, yeah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's, it's not going to be great. funny. Here's the thing. It's not, of course, it's not going to be funny. But I just know that since Derek is doing it, it's going to be excellent. It's just, I don't know if Derek is doing this because, like. I can. He's just doing this because he can. Like, <laughs> that's what, like, really gets me about this whole thing. Derek can literally take anything out of the scriptures and create a profound theological and oftentimes affirming uh, message from just about anything in the scriptures. Yeah, I'll it's be tying gift. it to LGBT liberation as well. See, he's tying plagues in the Bible to LGBT liberation. Yeah. Like, what is that? <laughs> like, what is that? And then the next week after, I'll be talking about um, Paul's letter from prison to the Philippian Christians and talking about that in a time of social isolation and what that looks like and how do you preserve the unity of the church when you can't be physically present with your people. I'm like, it's so relevant. Um, and also what it has to do with LGBT liberation. Uh, yeah, sweet. And uh, where can people find us, Derek? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram. Yes. I wonder if we'll eventually get a YouTube. Mate, I don't know, man. Like, I don't know. What are we going to do on YouTube? I think just a little short videos of people just watching us. I think there's there's something um, fun about watching videos that a lot of people will do that m may not just listen to something. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe in the future. Yeah. Okay. Well, Maybe we'll get a TikTok one day, too. Ooh. <laughs> and then you can finally teach me how to dance. Absolutely not. <laughs> TikToks. <laughs> TikTok, Snapchats. We're coming for all the social media. Anyway, yeah, been yeah. a pleasure, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.